The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of Clean Coders and its employees. Hey, everybody, and welcome to the first episode of the Clean Coders podcast. I'm your host, Charles Maxwood, and this week we have a special guest. It's Uncle Bob, Robert C. Martin. He's been a programmer since 1970. He's the co-founder of cleancoders.com, offering online video training for software developers and founder of Uncle Bob Consulting LLC, offering software consulting training and skill development services to major corporations worldwide. He served as the master craftsman at Eighth Light Inc., a Chicago-based software consulting firm. Uncle Bob has also published a lot of articles. He's been a speaker at a bunch of conferences. His video series on Clean Coders is pretty popular, and he's written a bunch of books. Bob, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Good to be here. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood, and I just launched my book, Max Coders Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there, The Max Coders Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. I picked up your book, Clean Agile. It's funny because I talk to people and people are like, is Agile still a thing? (laughs) Yeah. I'm like, well, it should be. You know, I'm a big big fan of Agile. I, you know, I try and practice it to some degree with my team. Of course, we're producing podcasts, not software. It's hard to Um, do Agile if it's not software. Yeah, (laughs) but I mean, we still meet on a weekly basis. We figure out what we're going to get done. You know, we, there are some aspects of Agile that I think apply to business And I've seen other people adapt different parts of it as well. I'm a little curious before we dive into the contents of the book. I read through your history of Agile, by the way. It was awesome. Why do you think we're seeing this weird decline of Agile? Because to me, it answers a lot of the problems that I've seen in development teams. Um, So decline. Well, first of all, the first question there is, is there a decline? The number of programmers in the world grows at some kind of an exponential rate which I think is, is roughly a doubling every five years. There's, there's quite a bit of evidence to support that, which means that any idea in software has this momentum that it has to achieve in order to just keep up with the number of people coming in. Oh, fair enough. And if you don't achieve that momentum, it looks like a decline. Now, is Agile really declining? I don't think so. I think it's keeping up with the flow. But In that process, it's getting wildly diluted. There are a a number of companies that are trying to brand it in their own way. They will put their own adjectives in front of it. There's been quite a bit of the initial message that has been lost. The reason I wrote the book was to reestablish the initial message to get, get everybody focused again on what the original purpose of Agile was. And so I think that's what's going on. We're in this fascinating game in software of trying to swim faster than the incoming flow of people. (laughs) Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, to a certain degree, too, we're seeing this in in other areas where, for example, I, I spend a lot of time talking to people in the Angular community. And if you go look on like Google Trends, you see the trend line for Angular going down. But the number of people coming into Angular is actually going up. Yes, and it's right. just because the relative number of people, you know, compared to the number of people who are out there searching for help on JavaScript front-end frameworks, you know, the percentage is declining, but the number of people coming in is, is actually increasing. And so that, that may be, you know, a fair summary of, of what's going on with Agile as well. I think you'd find that, that exact signature in Java, in Ruby, 
in, in most of the language in C++, yeah. certainly. In fact, that signature was prevalent even back in the 70s with COBOL. There were more people coming into COBOL, and yet COBOL was beginning to decline. Right. right. So we, we've, we've had this big faucet of people pouring into the industry, and no idea, unless it's a really great idea, can keep up with that. So now Agile has kept up with it for 20 years. We're doing all right. Right. That makes sense. It's interesting, too. And I've always wondered, like, what was it like to be at Snowbird? Now, Snowbird's like a half hour from here. Yeah. So, you know, you know, yeah, I know Alistair. Every week I used to go to a, a meetup that he'd put together. And uh, yeah, we just sit and talk Agile for an hour. Yeah. So it's Alistair who, um, who actually arranged it at Snowbird. We had thought we'd do it at uh, Caribbean Island. <laughs> Everybody thought that was a great idea. And then Alistair piped in and said, well, look, I can do it at Snowbird and I'll do all the legwork and you guys don't have to do anything. And, and you know, being essentially lazy, we thought that was great. Yeah. It's amazing how far you get on. I'll do all the work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's easy Alistair. to get your way. <laughs> Thank you, Alistair Coburn. Yes. Yeah. And so up at, at Snowbird, you know, your history was pretty interesting. It's a little bit more than I've gotten talking to Dave Thomas or Andy Hunt or one or two of the other folks. Martin Fowler, I've talked to a few times. Kent Beck you kind of get a different feel from everybody as far as how it went together. But I don't think anyone had really spelled out like what the agenda looks like and how you work through this to, to get to where we now have the Agile Manifesto. Yeah, it was, it was a really interesting time. There were a whole bunch of competing ideas right around 1999, 1998, that period. There was Scrum was already there and there was yep. extreme programming that was Kent Beck's baby. And there were several others. And at one point, we thought, and it was Martin Fowler and I got together and thought, you know, we ought to get all these people together in a room. <laughs> yep. And we, we came up with an invitation list and uh, sent it out with the subject line, Lightweight Process Summit, I think. Mm -hmm. And Alistair wrote back right away and said, oh, damn, I was just about to call that meeting myself, but I like your invitation list better than mine. Do you mind if I add mine to yours? And, and then I'll do all the work and we'll do it at Snowbird. <laughs> yeah, and Snowbird's a terrific place to go hang out. We, yeah, we had a lot of fun there. It was two oh, days. Sure. You know, we, a bunch of folks went skiing and good time that way. And it was also, you know, one of those rare times when a meeting actually produces something. <laughs> I've been to a lot of these, you know, where you get a bunch of people together and, hey, we've got a great idea. And then you spin for a couple of days and everybody walks away going, well, that was a waste of time. This was yeah. a case where actually something happened. And to get that many people of, of wildly differing opinions and completely different backgrounds to sit there and look at a board and nod in unison is a little yeah. bit magic. <laughs> yeah, I think I've seen that once or twice in my life, but it's tough, right? Because everybody's got a different idea of what's going on. But at the same time, it sounded like everybody kind of had the same idea as far as what the problems were and some of the ideas around how to address them. And I don't know that an Agile manifesto really could have come about unless you had boiled it down to certain principles or ideas instead of trying to, you know, hammer out, well, these are all the practices that people should do. Yeah, we knew right away we didn't want to focus on practices. We wanted to do this distillation down to the mm -hmm. essence. It was fascinating because even the people that we brought in as disagreeers 
agreed. You know, we had a couple of guys in there who, and we purposely brought them in. We said, you guys can keep us all honest. And so Steve Miller was one of those guys. He was not an agile guy at all. And actually the, the two prags, you know, Dave Thomas and the yep. Indian Hunt, they were like, you know, we don't want a new process. This is nonsense. And in the midst of all that, there's this thing on the board and everybody's sitting there looking at it going, well, yeah, that is yeah. kind of obvious. So it was a magic moment. Absolutely. And it's, it's interesting too, because I've had conversation with Dave Thomas in particular. He pointed out, and I think this is kind of some of the feel from your book as well, is that a lot of the ways that people are doing, for, for lack of a better term, quote unquote, agile, isn't exactly agile anymore, right? They're just following a list of prescribed practices and then chucking out the ones that they don't like and hoping for the best. Well, that has certainly happened. And of course, it began on the very first day. Right. But it has happened much more in recent times. Folks have um, picked and choose between the practices and the principles that they like and thrown out the others. And, and that doesn't really work very well. The most common pattern there is to take the, the business-facing practices, which the business people understand very right. well, and adopt those and throw away all the engineering practices and all the engineering principles. So we wind up with an agile lookalike from the business looking in, but from the developers looking out, it's just the way it always was. A mad dash, a bunch of horrible rushes towards the end, deadlines and pressure and, and yep. death marches. And from the outside looking in, everybody's going, well, it's still agile. How come it's messing <laughs> up? And all the developers are going, this isn't agile. <laughs> yeah. Or they're deluding themselves and thinking, well, we're doing Agile, you know, just to check the box and feel good about it. But yeah, there is some of that. And, and it's a shame because that was really started in the Scrum community. Yeah. Scrum is an interesting, interesting method. Ken Schwaber and, and Jeff Sutherland, Martin DeVoe, those guys did a lot of very good work. And they wrote up what Scrum ought to be. But they did focus on the business side much more than the engineering side. And although they said, you know, engineering practices are really very important to this, they did not specify any. They said the team can decide. Now, that's true. You know, the team can decide. But you need a bunch of very experienced people in the team to make that decision. Right. And you can't have some project manager who just got a certification, a Scrum Master certification, telling everybody what the engineering practices are going to be. Like, you know, we can't, we don't have time to write tests, guys. <laughs> Sorry, you know, this, the deadline's too short. There's, we can't refactor. We're just going to have to do it right up front. But you can do that because you're the team. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I worked a contract where we had a certified Scrum Master. And yeah, the weekly sprints included a two-day planning meeting every sprint. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, okay. You know, yeah. stuff like that. And, you know, yeah. eventually we started having our own planning meetings and we would take an hour, hour and a half and we would just grind through all the stuff that we were supposed to cover in the hour and a half meeting. And then we would all show up prepared essentially to wage war to get the meeting as short as possible. And we managed to get it down to like three quarters of a day. For a week? For a for, week? For two weeks. Yeah. All right, two week long sprint. Okay. <laughs> so it was still painful. So yeah, it's like, it's like, look, we don't feel agile, right? We're not moving you know, forward in a meaningful way. We're wasting our time once every two weeks. Those meetings, and it's, they're always a pain. And we started this by saying, look, planning sucks. So we want to keep that, yeah. that meeting as short as possible. A two-week sprint, you know, a, a good planning meeting is going to last no more than half a day. You know, the morning. Yeah. 
the Monday morning, you do the planning and, and then you walk away. And then you, you've got a good two-week sprint. It shouldn't take an awful lot of negotiation or fuss. Because yeah. even in that early sprint planning meeting, you don't know enough detail to really argue about it. And you don't want to be arguing about detail in that meeting. You just kind of want to say, okay, these are the four stories. This is what the estimate is. Let's do them and walk away. Yep, absolutely. So we're kind of talking around some of the problems in Agile and, you know, we, we kind of talked a bit about the Agile Manifesto, but, but for you, what is Agile? For me? <laughs> well, you wrote the book. Yeah, yeah, okay. And so, you're the expert, so, so yeah, what's Agile? For me, Agile is extreme programming. Okay. Uh, I got into this in, oh, I guess, 98, 97, I was a C++ consultant, you know, and I was flying around the world trying to tell people how to do object-oriented design and use C++ in a proper way. And my clients started asking me this question. And it was very funny because it was like three or four of them all in the, in the space of a couple of months asked me this question. And the question was, what process should we use? And, you know, I'm sitting there scratching my head going, yeah, I'm a programmer. What do I know about process? How am I supposed to answer this question? And I started to write my own, which was a big mistake, terrible mistake. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm not even going to go into what I said. But in the process of trying to write my own, I was doing some research, and I stumbled across extreme programming. Now, I had known Kent Beck for a few years at this point. He and mm -hmm. I had bumped into each other at, at one of the patterns meetings in downstate Illinois, one of the plop conferences. Right. And we'd gotten into a little bit of an argument there. So we had um, a slightly um, adversarial relationship. And I saw what he was writing about this. And it was just, just exactly what I wanted to tell my customers. You know, okay, we're going to do things in short cycles and we're going to keep mm -hmm. the code good and clean. And, you know, we're going to estimate in points and all of this stuff it just clicked with me. I thought, yeah, this, this is right. Except for this funny thing about writing tests first. That I couldn't stomach. That was awful. But I thought the rest of it was very good. I thought, this is what I want to tell my customers. And then by sheer accident, the way these things happen is just so strange. By sheer accident, in 1999 or 98, I was in Munich at a uh, conference there, the OOP conference, the OOP conference. And I'm teaching in a classroom and just by happenstance, the guy teaching across the hall from me is Kent Beck. And I walk out during a break, and he walks out during the break, and we look at each other and say, Kent, I got to talk to you about this extreme programming thing. And, and we decide to have lunch together, and he's telling me all this stuff at lunch. And I'm asking him about, you know, this test first thing, and he says, don't worry about that. It's the other stuff that's important. And I said, okay, I want you to write an article for me. I was the editor of the C++ report at the time. Okay. And I said, uh, why don't you write me a, a, an article and I'll put it in the C++ report. And he wrote this really great article about an incident that he had while he was doing extreme programming. And I thought, okay, I got to talk to this guy more. So I flew out to Medford, Oregon, where Kent was living at the time. And I spent a couple of days with him there. And we drove out to Crater Lake and saw that. That was great. Mm -hmm. But we sat down and he just walked me through everything. And he even showed me this test first thing. And I was completely floored. I'd never seen anybody write code in such tiny little cycles like that. I left that meeting thinking, okay, this is something I've got to get 
good at. And this whole extreme programming thing is, is really worth spending some time on. I have never left that. You asked me what Agile is to me. I have never left that mindset. For me, Agile is a good implementation of extreme programming. I understand that other people have issues with some of the practices in extreme programming. That's fine. You can do Agile without actually doing extreme programming to the nines. But if I'm doing Agile, it's going to be extreme programming. That's interesting. So how do the principles then in Agile development, you know, in the Agile manifesto, how do those map onto the practices in extreme programming? So I think there's a a one-to-one correspondence between them. You can take a look at the principles, every one of those principles, like people over, okay, now I'm forgetting my principles. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but... Each one of those will tie to a, one of the extreme programming practices. So pair programming. Pair programming is people over process. Right? right. When we're pairing, we're not involved with the process of coding so much as we are with the negotiation of two people working together at the same screen, at the same keyboard, negotiating how the, how the code is going to come out. By the way, there's a bunch of folks now that, that have gotten into this idea of mob programming, which I think is pretty interesting where you got, you know, four or five, six people and they're all standing around a screen and they're all contributing. I've never done that myself other than in, you know, a few conferences where you'll, you'll, ha- you'll have, you know, four or five people standing around the screen. But, but I did find the pairing to be really, really useful. And I've done a fair bit of that right. since then. It really does work out very well. I often tell people, you know, you don't have to pair 100% of the time. You don't have to pair 50% of the time. Just pair enough so that you're moving ideas around inside the team and you're collaborating on the code and you're right. kind of in a review mode so that every, every line of code has more than one set of eyes on it. And that really is sufficient. Take another one. Um, let's see, um, a working code over, over contract negotiation or something like that. Working code over, over following. Software over comprehensive and, documentation is what I'm reading and, on the. Oh, yeah. Code over documentation and, con- and negotiation over contracts. Okay. Yeah. So in extreme programming, you don't follow a detailed plan. Now, there is a plan, you know, and the plan is crude and it's rough and it's, it's easily negotiable and it's easy to change. And you revisit it every week or every two weeks. And even in the midst of an iteration or in the midst of a sprint, there's this constant negotiation back and forth over just exactly what we're going to implement and, and what we shouldn't implement and how it ought to be implemented, what the feature ought to look like. We're always calling the, the stakeholders back in and saying, well, what about this? Mm-hmm. What about that? So there's this constant communication flow between the business and the programmers. And that is much better than you know, following a strict detailed plan or having a contract that nails everything down. So I think there's this one-to-one correspondence between all the principles and the practices themselves. And the principles, the, you know, those four statements on the manifesto, I can never keep them straight because they're really kind of a big ball yeah. of not just trade-offs between one thing and another, but this kind of interacting thing. We like people and we like negotiation and we like working code and we like all these things and the other things are fine. They're fine, but we like these other things better. And, and we will end up tipping on the side of those other things when it comes down to a, uh, a test. Yeah, it makes sense. 
I want to change tactics just a little bit here. In the book, you talked a little bit more, especially at the beginning, about Agile being about data, right? And so yes. as you as you follow some of these practices, I guess this is a reasonable follow-on to what we were just talking about. We're talking about having more data, more a better idea of how things are going to go in the future. Even though we're not really, you know, as you said, following a plan. We have a methodology. We know kind of what the pile of work looks like. Any of this may change, you know, we, we have to be able to adapt to it. But so what kinds of data are going to come out of following Agile practices? Well, the primary data that comes out of Agile, and it comes out on a, on a weekly basis or a biweekly basis, depending on the size of your sprint, is how much got done. Mm-hmm. <laughs> how much got done last, last week? How much, how much got done last sprint? And it comes out in a way that is meaningful. Because at the end of every sprint, at the end of every iteration, the system that you've produced is deployable. The business may not wish to deploy it because it may be underfeatured, right. but it is deployable from a technical point of view. What that means, of course, is that all the tests pass, that QA has already signed off on it, that there's nothing left to be done. That means that the amount of work that went into the sprint that was initially planned for the sprint and the amount that comes out is a measurable unit. You can look at that and say, oh, well, I got X things done. And if you do that over and over again, if every sprint you say, well, they got X done that sprint and they got X plus one done that sprint and X minus two done that sprint, you can kind of get this feeling that, oh, well, they're, they're going to get X done every sprint. And okay, how many X's are in the project? Well, there's a thousand X's in the project. Okay, it's going to take us a thousand sprints. Yeah. And that's really powerful data. If you're a manager and you want to know the health of the team and the state of the project, If you can look at a chart that says, well, we got 50 out of the 100 things done, you know, and we got another 50 to do and we're getting five per sprint done, that means it's going to be about 10 more sprints. If you can look at that, well, you've got a heck of an advantage. I mean, you know that the project is on some kind of track and you can project forward and see where the project is going to be. That's a very simplistic view. But the whole point of doing this, of working in sprints and estimating in points and showing how many points get done per sprint and plotting them on a chart, the whole point of doing that is so that managers can look at this chart and go, oh, yeah, okay, I see where we're going. And and it's relatively stable. And yes, we're going to make it by May. And by the way, it's much more common that the manager looks at it and go, oh, damn, we're not going to make it by May. (laughs) And that's good to know early. Right? Yes. We want to know that early. If they know it early, managers can then say, well, okay, all right, maybe there's something I can do to either make it by May or tell the stakeholders and the business people that it's going to be a little later than possible. I, I like to say that Agile is about destroying hope. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that. Yeah. Well, okay. What do you mean? Because well, hope I, is a good thing, right? No, not in a project. Hope is the project killer. Hope is the thing that makes everybody stay the course when the course needed to change, right? So okay. we want that hope destroyed as early as possible. We want everybody looking at the data. And if the data is telling us something bad, we want to react to that as early as possible. Are you a pilot? No. Okay, let me tell you about flying an airplane, right? You want to know as early as possible if something is going wrong. <laughs> Right? Yeah, because, I bet. Yeah, you want to be able to get that plane someplace safe. <laughs> See, and yep. hope, hope is the last thing you want when you're flying an airplane. And it's exactly the same thing as in a software project. Hope is the last thing you want. 
the project manager walks into the room where all the developers are and asks all the developers, hey, how's it going in here? And all the developers look up with big grins on their face and they say, oh, it's, all, it's going fine. And they're lying <laughs> through their teeth because they hope that things really are going fine when they know that things are in fact not. The data on the wall, the data produced by Agile is the nail in the coffin. It says, oh, damn, we got a problem. And if you get that early enough, you can correct. I remember at one job that I had, one of my teammates compared the... He was kind of the marketing manager and he was driving the features that I think eventually killed the company. <laughs> but he compared him to a, a seagull and he was like, yeah, he'd come in, he'd make a whole lot of noise, he'd crap all over everybody and then he'd leave, right? Because we'd tell him we're not there yet. And so it can, it can kind of work the other way too, where you're actually being honest and somebody doesn't want to accept it. But then it's their hope, right? Not ours. And we can back it up by data because we did, we were following agile practices. We did have a velocity. We knew when we were going to be able to get it done. Of course, that ultimately led to a death march and then layoffs. But, you know, because the business tried to compensate for that, right? And I see businesses do this in other places too, where they, you know, they start telling teams they have to get more story points done in a sprint or things like that, right? So then they start padding the stories with points. And I mean, it's interesting, you know, the level of screw up that can come in because of hope, right? I hope if I can just push a little harder, or I hope that if I just come in and crap all over everybody, that eventually it'll, it'll, make up the difference. So it's not just on the development team, it's, it's everybody involved in the project. It definitely is. And <laughs> an agile project that is executed well by the team can fail horribly because the managers don't look at the data and don't make decisions based on the data. The managers maintain their hope. And often that's because the managers above them have made demands and so, you know, project managers are sitting there, well, I hope I can force these guys to go faster. Here's a little tip for all you project managers out there. You cannot force programmers to go faster. And the more you push on them, the slower they will go. Yep. It's almost like physics. It's not because they're being belligerent. It's because you crank the pressure up one way or the other, and it makes it harder to get the work done. So I'll go back to another airplane analogy, right? There are cases in an airplane when you're going slow. If you put the throttle forward, you turn, add more power, you will go slower. This is called oh, getting really? behind the power curve. And there's a certain angle of flight where if, if you're, you're going pretty slow and you got that nose up pretty high and you add power, it's just going to take the nose up higher and you're going to go slower. And that happens to, um, to software developers as well. They get so much drag. They produce code that is so difficult to work through that the drag of trying to get anything done increases. And the more effort you push in, the more drag. And the only solution to that is to take the pressure off. Right. And to back down and let the nose of the airplane come down and then, and then gradually start increasing your speed. You know, I hate to use these airplane analogies all the time, but that actually is a, a really close analogy in a software project. You can get a bunch of guys who are working like sons of guns. They're coming in all hours. They're sweating like crazy. And all they're doing is adding mess to the existing mm -hmm. mess. Yep. And making things worse and worse and worse. Right. I've been that guy. I know. <laughs> I think anybody who's been in the industry for long enough has been in that position. I'd like <laughs> our generation to be the last one to say that. I would like that too. I don't know how realistic it is. But... Well, that might be hope on my part. But yeah. that's a hope I will continue to hold. 
I think as agile permeates through the industry and demonstrates success after success, which it's been doing pretty well, you know, I hope that developers coming out of school and developers in their early phases will just never have to see some of the terrible situations that, that I've been in, and I'm sure you have too. Yep. Let's talk a little bit more about some of the, the practices or types of practices that people really ought to have as part of their Agile process. Yes. Because not everybody's going to want to do XP, but at the same time, I mean, there are some things that they need to be doing in order to be successful, right? Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, the first thing, start right down at the engineering level. You have to have some kind of discipline, some kind of practice that keeps the code clean and under control. Alan Turing in 1945, wrote a paper after writing the very first code to ever execute on an electric computer, on an electronic computer. And he, and he said, I'm going to paraphrase this, one of our difficulties will be the maintenance of an appropriate discipline so that we do not lose track of what we are doing. Mm-hmm. That's one programmer after working less than a year on one machine, and he already understood the nature of the problem. Right. The nature of the problem is to maintain an appropriate discipline so that you don't lose track of what you're doing. A batch of code can get out of control very rapidly. What does it mean to get out of control? It means that the code starts to command you. You react to the code instead of instead of you controlling the code. You look at the screen and you realize that you ought to clean it, but you don't dare clean it because the risk of cleaning it is too high. And so you simply continue to perpetuate the mess. You make it worse and worse, and you have no control over this anymore because the risk is too high. The discipline is to keep that risk low. Now, in in extreme programming, we do that by using test-driven development. We write a sequence of tests, and we can execute those tests at any moment and know that the system works, and that helps us keep the code under control. Are there other disciplines that will do that? I don't know of any, but maybe there are. And if there are, they would be an appropriate thing to use in an agile environment. But the essence of keeping the engineering under control so that you can clean it and you can fix it and you can continue to manipulate it in a positive direction is the essence of any team, whether it's Agile or not. Mm-hmm. 100% agree with that. It's interesting because I, I swear, every project I've worked on has had that part of the code where nobody wanted to go touch it. Hey, you've been in the Ruby community for a good long time. And my, my yeah. understanding in the Ruby community was that testing was pretty important. Not yes. that they had adopted test-driven development, but I remember working in Rails and Rails had a reasonably good yes. testing mindset. Movie folks in general had a pretty good testing mindset. Am I right in thinking that or am I off? You are correct. However, I have worked on teams where the testing practice and discipline were not, how do I say it? They were not emphasized. And so what would happen is people would write the bare minimum of tests to get, you know, get people off their back or to get the code coverage up. And then they just leave it. And so what would happen is you would still wind up with hotspots where, yeah, you had some tests around it but not enough. And by not enough, what it meant was I couldn't go confidently change the code and know that it wasn't going to break stuff. Well, yeah, that is kind of the the threshold. (laughs) If you cannot confidently change the code, the code's out of control. Yep. And the other thing is, is, I mean, some code's simple enough to where you can look at it and you can go, okay, I'm fairly confident, right, that I can change this code. 
it was complicated enough and the tests weren't comprehensive enough. And so you would get into a position where you would look at the code and you would say, I don't dare change this. Or you would think that you, you would confidently change it and then find out that your confidence was misplaced. Now, because you it would something. cause a problem somewhere down the line. You said something interesting there. You said in order to get the coverage up, did you yeah. work in places where coverage was something that managers looked at and demanded yes. a certain level? Yep. Really? Yep. That's horrible. <laughs> right? Managers, I agree. Managers don't know what coverage means. Nope. They look at the number and go, oh, well, the number must be pretty good. But, but you know, a coverage tool simply tells you what lines of code were executed, not which yep. lines of code were tested. And so you can drive that coverage. We knew that. What? Yeah, of course you knew that. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, so how do you get the coverage numbers up? Well, you take a few asserts out. Yep. Okay. All right. <laughs> so, <laughs> you you either rules? do that or you write a test that has, yeah, that only has one assert but runs all the code. Yes, as much code as possible with as few asserts as possible. My advice to teams always has been, don't let managers see the coverage number. It's not a management metric. It's a team metric. You can look at it, and as long as you understand what it means, it can be meaningful to the techies. But mm-hmm. at a management level, it's completely irrelevant and dangerous. Yep. That's kind of the, the place that we got to. So, yeah. So, one of the practices is, you know, having some discipline around uh, code quality, I guess, the readability and, and maintainability of the code, including tests. Are there other things that people should be doing? Well, one of the other things is that you need some way of communicating the structure and the the process of the code throughout the team. The team members will tend to focus into little islands if there's not some Mm -hmm. way to move that data around. Silo-driven development? Yes. And by the way, that's very comfortable for programmers. Oh, yeah. Silo, and then you're responsible for your little bit, and you're not responsible for anybody else's little bit, and that's terrible. It's not a team. No, it's, it's, it's totally great until John goes on to the next company and all of a sudden I have to maintain his code too. Well, so that's the obvious, the obvious symptom, but there are subtler symptoms. Yes. You and I do not share a mental framework, then we cannot build a product together. If you don't know what I'm doing and I don't mm-hmm. know what you're doing, we will never get the puzzle pieces to fit and we will always be pointing each other is the reason why. Right. There's got to be some practice that allows information like that to move through the team in an efficient and effective way. Now, this is why I like pair programming. Pair programming does this, right? But maybe you could do some other practice, like some very good code review discipline. Mm -hmm. I don't like code reviews. Most of the code reviews I see are pro forma, rubber stamp things. The appropriate effort is not put into them. But if you have the appropriate code review discipline, I think they can work. And then maybe you wouldn't have to do pair programming. I think pair programming is much more efficient, but okay. Maybe you've got a better better way. That's fine. The thing I like about pair programming, you know, you say it's more efficient, but to me, it's more natural, right? That I sit down next to you, we work on a problem together, and at the end of the period, we we understand what the other person was thinking to a certain degree. It's just easy to do that because you're, you know, you're working through those things together. There are people who are adamantly opposed to pair programming. They yes. can't even conceive of the idea of sitting next to someone. And, you know, I think their feelings are real. I can't discount them. Yep. It may be that they can simply never pair and they have to use some other discipline, but they must use some other discipline. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. 
So knowledge dissemination, code discipline, what other things are we missing here? There's an element of courage. Once you have the system under control, once you've got the code under control, and you know you can change it with relative safety, and once the team has knowledge dispersed amongst it so you can come to a consensus, then the next thing you can do is drive to simplicity. You can all look at each other and say, we don't need X, Y, and Z yet. We can push that off. For example, we don't need a database yet. We don't need to make the database decision just now. We can make that database decision later because we know that this code is well enough controlled and we understand each other well enough and and we have a shared mindset enough that we can defer that decision for a good long time. What that means is that really important, high-consequence decisions can be delayed until you have the maximum amount of information to make them. In the extreme programming, we called this simple design, and it falls right in line with the, uh, the value of courage. How do you get courage in a software development team? You keep the code under as much control as you can, and you share as much knowledge as possible. And then you have the courage to make really consequential decisions at the latest possible moment when you have the most information to make them. For example, when do you have to get the uh, GUI framework in there? Don't have to do it early. You could do it late. When do you have to decide uh, what the data model is going to look like? Uh, You can do that pretty late as long as you've got the behavior model in early. So there's a a whole bunch of trade-offs that those first two things enable is keeping the code under control and dissemination of knowledge enable a whole bunch of other trade-offs. And those are really valuable trade-offs. Those are the the architect-level trade-offs. And that gets into a really interesting point. You cannot have a good software architecture unless you are able to make those trade-offs. And therefore, a good software architecture depends critically on the ability of the team to keep control of the code and disseminate knowledge. Makes sense. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I don't have anything else to say. I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, the, the trade-offs are hard to make sometimes, but the principle there is, is relatively straightforward. So the, the counter to it, the opposite, is when the architect at the very beginning of the project, right, says, okay, uh, we're using framework X and database Y and uh, these things over here and that over there, and he sets out the entire suite of tools and frameworks and all of these high-consequence decisions without a scintilla of evidence for supporting that. And then all the developers have to fall in line and use all these heavyweight tools and heavyweight things that possibly are the wrong tools or that they possibly don't need at all. And that drives the project into a swamp. <laughs> yeah. I, I consulted for a team long, long ago. This was, this was uh, oh gosh... 2001, 2002. It was a brand new team. They were taking an old product and they were putting it on the web because, you know, in in those days you had to take everything and put it on the web. And the the company had hired a bunch of brand new Java programmers. And these these kids came out of school with visions of server farms dancing in their heads. And (laughs) literally, they knew they were going to have server farms everywhere. It was just going to be so cool to have all these server farms and and they had uh, server farms for the UI and server farms for the middleware and server farms for the database. And they, they had all this socket stuff they were doing to push objects up and down this, this server farm hierarchy. They never sold 
a product that had more than one processor ever. Wow. And inside that processor, <laughs> they still had all that server farm nonsense, pushing objects through sockets inside the processor. Oh, wow. It took them an immense amount of time to do anything because the architects made these, these critically important decisions so early, they locked themselves into a structure that made them go at about 10% normal rate. Right. That's... <laughs> It's it's funny though because I've been on teams that I mean maybe not to that level but you know have have made early decisions like that that we had to live with for the rest of the code and it turned out that we never got to the point where any of that stuff really mattered. Yeah, well that happens frequently enough but you're yeah. still carrying the weight yes of those early decisions and there's no way out especially yeah. if you don't have control of the code. Yeah. There's no way you can't just surgically remove that stuff unless you've got a really good suite of tests or some way to keep that code under control. Yep. I guess my next question is, because we're kind of getting toward the end of our scheduled time, <laughs> is how do you recommend then that people get started with Agile? Because I think most people, what happens is they go out and they say, we want to do Agile. Then they find some methodology, right? So it could be XP or Scrum or... yeah. I mean, there are a bunch of them out there. And they go and they kind of adopt one of those and do that until, you know, like I said before, it's this is a pain and they throw it out. And <laughs> The risk of trying to do too much too early and then failing and then throwing out everything, throwing out the baby with the bathwater is very, very high. So here's the first piece of advice. Do not hire a consultant to come in and change the culture of your organization. <laughs> wow. Organization cultures do not change. Uh, you made a couple of my friends really, really sad. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of folks out there that that sell that kind of consulting. But changing the culture of an organization is extremely difficult and fraught with all kinds of risk. If you are interested in Agile, start it at the lowest possible level. You know, a couple of developers just decide that it's the way they're going to work. Maybe you've got a little team and that team is on a project where it's not real consequential and you can begin to practice these things. Bit by bit, you may be able to infiltrate into the organization. At some point, and, and here's the key to it, at some point, if you get a little bit of success at it, you can get to the CEO or somebody pretty up high because at the CEO level, it's exactly the way they work. Executives at the top level do not operate according to some gigantic plan, right? They work in short cycles. There's lots of courage and feedback. Usually at the top levels, you start describing Agile to them and they go, well, yeah, I mean, isn't that the way you're working? I mean, what else could you possibly be doing? The problem is that there's this real thick middle management layer inside the organization and the middle managers were hired for the purpose of anchoring the existing business processes. So if they see people doing something down there that is not according to spec, they'll kill it. So Agile team, a little Agile team down there will get killed by the middle management. So the, the Agile team down there has to masquerade. They can be doing Agile, but they have to masquerade and make it appear that they're not doing Agile to the middle managers and gain enough momentum so that they can leap above the middle managers and start talking to the executives. Even then, there's a really high chance of failure because the middle managers are immensely powerful, more powerful even than the CEO, unless the CEO wants to uh, fire them all, which of course he can't do or she can't do. So that's very difficult. Now, the other approach is to find a company that is doing Agile. And there are quite a few of those. 
the way that happens is they start by doing agile. And I think this is going to be the mechanism that actually succeeds in the industry. More and more companies are being founded on the ideas of agile. And so they can do agile right off the bat. And then you can join companies like that and continue to do agile. And I think that will be the primary means of agile growth. I have seen a number of, of consultants go into companies with every intent of doing things well, teaching the programmers how to do agile well, only to have the entire thing shut down by the middle management and thrown out. And then what happens is that the programmers who got the inkling, who got the feel of agile, will leave and they will go somewhere else where they can do agile. Yeah, makes sense. <laughs> uh, do, you, do you want to talk a little bit about the book real quick and then we'll uh, wrap up? Well, the book is really just kind of what we have been talking about. This whole discussion has been topics that are in the book. The book is called Clean Agile. It is my rantings, rantings and ravings. It's somewhat biographical. It is my opinion and my rantings and my, my feelings about what Agile should be in 2019 and 2020. Uh, it's a reaction against all of the, the forces in the industry that are attempting to twist and turn and warp Agile into their own purposes, not with any ill intent, but you know that's what happens when you do marketing. So it's a, a kind of restatement of the original Agile idea. If you want to know what Agile was, and if you want to know what Agile will be, I believe the book is the best description of that at the moment. Very cool. Is there a place where people can follow you or reach out to you online? Sure. Twitter is uh, at Uncle Bob Martin. It's all one word, all lowercase, Uncle Bob Martin. You can go to either of my websites. Uh, there's my personal website, which is cleancoder.com. C-L-E-A-N-C-O-D-E-R.com. And of course, there's the video website where I sell a very large number of instructional videos with personality. I dress up like Spock. And that is um, cleancoders.com, C-L-E-A-N-C-O-D-E-R-S.com. And folks want to go there, I will be happy to have them land on those websites. Terrific. Well, thanks for coming, Bob. This was really terrific. And yeah, I'm looking forward to uh, reading the bits of the book that I didn't quite get to, but I really just appreciate all of the knowledge and experience that's gone into this because I feel like in a lot of cases, people talk about agile and give it lip service and don't really talk about what it means or what it can do for people. And I think this book really kind of hammers that home and allows people to then go and look at what they're doing and decide where they can make a difference on their teams or in their companies as far as how they build software. Okay, well, thanks for that. It's been a good talk. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.